So for most of the week, I've been telling myself I really can't look at Chris and Jim during the service or else I'm just going to melt because I felt the goodness of God through you too. Thank you guys. So as a kid, I remember vividly looking out the windows of my house, waiting for the mail to arrive. I have a sister named Kelly, and she was always the first one. She'd sprint out the door, she'd get to the box, uh, she'd just page through it on the way in, and then spill it on the counter. It was awesome for a little bit. Uh, My guess is that most of you have received mail or email of some sort at some time from someone you didn't know. And usually that's pretty boring. It's not very exciting. So sometime along the way, uh, little Nick notices pattern of disappointment where all sorts of bills and ads from strangers and companies would come in without anything important or personal. Come back with me to the 60s AD where we find a church gathered in the rather unimpressive city of Colossae. The Colossian Christians were doing amazing. They were walking in faith, expressing love for the saints, and living with great hope. But the pressure was rising, the heat was turning up, and threatening to turn members away. One day, they receive mail from a man they've never met before, who introduces himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Normally, mail from people you don't know isn't very exciting, but this is different. As the people gather close to listen, they hear that this brother has not ceased to pray for them. They hear him tell of the reigning and the resurrected Jesus, and he shows in the course of this letter that no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving and the liberating rule of Jesus. He also shows that we're invited to live right now as though the new coming creation and the consummated reign of Christ arrived right when Jesus rose from the dead. Come to Colossians 1 with me. Take a minute. Turn there now. I first wrote this message for a church which I hope to go to, join, and pastor. And in his kindness, the Lord is bringing that to pass. (laughs) That same message, giving it to a family, which is just hard to leave. So I was asking myself, why is Vertical Church St. Paul hard for me to leave? And my answer just simply is that you are vertical, just about Jesus. I find myself bragging about y'all all the time, wherever I go, just because I know what God has done here. I've seen it. I felt it. He's given me several fast brothers whom I love dearly. Here, he has shepherded my wife and I through joy and struggle. He has convicted me of sin, and convinced me of grace here. I 
And what gets me is just that we're not entitled to those things. But he does that through his people. He chose to do them here, so I'm thankful for you. So, my message today is just one of praise to my king who has wondrously manifested his love to me through each other. Guys, church is important. Okay. So, let's hear what Paul says to the church. Colossians 1, 15 through 23. He is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible, things invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things all together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in thou blood of mine do eyes down. Let's pray. Jesus, you know that we need you, and we know that we need you. <laughs> so our prayer as we've been worshiping this morning is just that we would continue to worship and nothing else, that you would be praised. Be magnified in us, Jesus. Let your word burn within us. Bring us to where we need to be. Show us yourself and let that do all the talking. Lord, come here, please. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do this. Ready? First off, I think it's helpful to have a finger on that word preeminent uh, because it's big and we don't use it very much now. It just means first in everything. First in everything. So what I'm hoping that we can see and feel in this text is that the mess and the joys of everyday life are where the preeminence, that first of Christ, Christ first plays out. It's profoundly normal. It's normal because all things are from him, for him, and to him. So in the text, verses 15 through 20, form what, what we can kind of call a messianic hymn. It's a, a hymn, song, or poem of praise about the Messiah, the promised deliverer of Israel. So this text is explicitly, right from the start, it's explicitly, unashamedly, offensively about Jesus, okay? So we're going to talk about this question, who is Jesus? Without any in mind, we're just going to read it again. Verse 15 says, He is the image of the invisible God. God loves starting out with a paradox, right? So when, when Paul is saying image here, think picture, likeness, representation, something that means then that those who see or experience Jesus see God. We're going to circle around that idea of image for a moment, so we can really feel this text, all right? So Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over all the earth. 
And then he did it, right? We're here. He did it. God created man and woman in his image, charging them to fill the earth. But why? Why did he do that? Simply because we were created to show or to to manifest that glory of God in the world. Think with me. So the Mona Lisa calls attention to two things. We've got the woman in the picture and then good old Leonardo da Vinci himself, the artist, right? Statue of David, same thing. Calls our attention to two things. We have David, the image, and then Michelangelo, the creator. You get where we're going here, right? So, people call attention to Jesus because they're made in his image and he is their maker. So it's like the double here, right? So in art, making a picture is a thing of beauty. According to design, people are are just wonderful because they're made in the image of God. God is far transcendent. He's far better than us. But, But there is still some resemblance or kind of analogy between him and us. Like him, we are to be intelligent and moral persons. And there's some capacity to mirror God's holiness, which is the vocation that we find in Genesis 1. That's our job, right? Our job is to fill and keep the earth. So the Lord's holiness and beauty is just found everywhere. The fall, so our, our collective rebellion, just stains that image. And you and I know how bad sin is from the damage that it does person to person, right? The consequences of it are very painful. They can be very painful. But we can't understand the seriousness of sin unless we understand the holiness of God, seeing how great and how good our God is. So the word holiness itself has two meanings, which are going to give us a picture here. Okay, so first we have otherness, which shows that God is profoundly different from and better than everything. He is set apart from all others for himself. And then second, we have purity, which shows that God is completely, perfectly, unalterably good. He is good. There's no evil mixed in. So God is holy. He is majestic and he is good. And we need to take sin seriously. The reason every sin is a problem is that big or small, it slanders God. Because we are made in his image, doing our evil is denying his goodness. Right? It's a sort of blasphemy where we as humans make ourselves God and truly we've fallen short of his glory. We've failed to live in such a way that shows his holiness. We failed. We will fail. But here's the thing, Jesus didn't. Colossians 1.15 says that those who see or experience Jesus see God. Right? He's the image of the invisible God. He lives up to the job. He's the perfect man, but he's not just a man. In the second half of the verse, we read that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. That's cool. Right? For a good chunk of history, the, the firstborn son in any family would inherit special rights and privileges and, and have certain responsibilities with that. 
okay? So we can only imagine what sort of inheritance a prince would receive, right? It'd be huge. But any firstborn son had privileges within the family and culture. Naturally, the inheritance, the size of that, would be determined by the wealth of the family. So, (laughs) answer this. How much wealth does Jesus' family have? Here's the deal. Over how much does his father, the king, reign? What's his inheritance going to be? And then look in the text. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, things visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He's the perfect man, but he wasn't created. He was the one doing the creating. John 1 says he was in the beginning with God, and precisely all things were made through him. So point two, point two, Jesus is the creator. As Leonardo with the Mona Lisa, Michelangelo with David, so is Christ with all things. Even if we set aside the fact that Christ has purchased all things as the redeemer of creation, as a perfect man who endured suffering and was found true, we must also consider the fact that he is God with natural rights as God. Hebrews 2.10 says this. It reads, For it was fitting that he, so Jesus, speaking of God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation, God the Son, perfect through suffering. So this is not saying that Jesus was imperfect, but that as he lived in his flesh, his full obedience was shown and he was made the perfect sacrifice for sins. Okay, you following me here? Again, Hebrews 2. We'll keep on the train. Verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and a faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay, now in Colossians, Paul is telling the church this. He says, hey, this Jesus... Our suffering Savior shares one identity with the Creator God. And Christian, do you know what that means? All right, let's listen to the saints here. Soak in it. Here's the first one. Charles Spurgeon says this. He goes, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sun does not move an Adam more or less than God wishes. That every particle of spray that dashes against the steamboat has its orbit, as well as the sun and its heavens. That the chaff from the hand of the winnower is steered, as are the stars in their courses. The creeping of an aphid over the rosebud is as much fixed as the march of a devastating pestilence. The fall of the sear leaves from a poplar is as fully ordained as the tumbling of an avalanche. Abraham Kuyper of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And then, this might be my favorite. Uh, 
This is what Scott Hubbard says. Suffering can thwart our creator's sovereign rule as soon as the sun flies from its course or the seasons refuse to arise or the molecules stop hearing the word of him who upholds the universe. What a mighty promise, right? This is one of those you take to the bank, man. This is our king, Jesus, the creator who held together the nails that sliced his wrists and the beam on which he died. He ordained that for his glory and for his people. For his glory, for his people. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. His people. Jesus, point three, Jesus is head of the church. So Paul just talked about this huge truth that Christ is Lord over creation and then he follows up with this. Why? Well, he loves them. Two, Paul seems to have in mind a people who, unlike the creation, will actually continue on in living into the next age. There's a coming inheritance for all those who conquer by the blood of the Lamb, right? Jesus conquered death by dying redeemed the people for himself in so doing, and that people is the church. Capital C Church. All Christians, all time, those are his. Pastor isn't the head of the church. Pope isn't the head of the church. No Christian, no human can do that. We're not fit for such a role, but Christ is. Christ is. And our proof of that is that the church doesn't die, right? It just, it keeps living, and you wonder why. Christians, friends, the church... The, the advancement of the gospel is, is built on the blood of the saints. But the church lives. Why? Its head can't die. So, at present, we're caught somewhere between the middle of two things. The world we live in, which is very broken, very hurting, Right? But we also see something coming. Look with me in 18. It says, Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So point four is that Jesus is the reconciler. Let's pan out for a minute. This, this Greek word here that we, we see as beginning, we can... We can translate it as firstborn, of course, but kind of like the, the ruler from the start or even like the first cause. So to paraphrase John's writing over in his gospel, he says that in the beginning was the word, Jesus is the word. He was in the beginning with God. Nothing was made without him and with him. In him is the life that is the light of mankind. So that's, that's in chapter one of his gospel. If we go over to the end of John's writing, Revelation 21, he says, behold, I'm making all things new. This is Jesus on the throne, making things new. And then he says, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. His was the first word. His will be the last. And yet, he's also firstborn from the dead. Not only is he the ruler of this age, He's also the ruler of the age to come. 
The Lord stands beyond the beginning and after the end, and he's sovereign over it all. He is the first risen among many to rise. Romans 6 forces that we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus is the reconciler, bringing all things back to the peace of Eden, that garden, that we too might walk in newness of life. At the end of the Bible, we find a renewed, like that same picture, but renewed, of the garden where God dwells with his people. It's beautiful. Go to point five. It says, Jesus is God. So, when I read this, I, I feel like it's an obvious statement from, from where I'm standing here, right? I'm a church kid. I work at Chick-fil-A. I'm almost done with seminary and going to be a pastor. Like, what else am I going to say, man? But here, here's the reality. For many of us, this is a hard truth to believe for men. Many, many don't believe this. Maybe you don't believe this. I'm not, I'm not going to read into that here. So, so how do we hold to this revelation? Like, what do we do? We read that in, in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, Okay? And through him to reconcile all things on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. I read that. I'm not sure what to do. It's, it, it's terrible and it's good. We have to feel both of those notes, right? It's terrible and it's good. Let me explain. First with the question, how do we as small creatures approach something as magnificent as this? Right? Like, what do we do when we come face to face with God? Um, in, in some of the Gospels, we read this story where Jesus takes a few of his friends up a mountain. The appearance of his face is changed, and they're, they're standing before the Son of God, radiating divine glory. Well, okay, so they start standing, and then they're floored. They collapse in fear because it's a fearful thing to meet what is holy. Verse 20. The text says that God is reconciling all things to himself, that Jesus made peace. And this is like the aftermath of a cosmic battle where we can either willingly kneel before our king now or we will kneel later as a people who have been conquered. Okay. I, I like how Richard Chin puts it. He says, every person, so you, will either kneel and enjoy reconciling forgiveness from Jesus or face reconciling judgment from Jesus. Both are in the sense of restoring true and peaceful order reconciliation. So think of an accountant who's reconciling the books, right? Just putting everything into order right as it should be. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus is the reconciler. And then we kind of we shift a little bit, feel this other question in the book. Verse 15 said, he is. And then verse 21 now says, and you. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, 
doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Who are we? This is Paul talking to a church. So the question we're asking is, who is a Christian? Well, he starts alienated, hostile, doing evil deeds. Those are what Christians were, okay? Those words describe an enemy, right? Christians were once alienated. That's what a Christian was. But a Christian is, well, verse 22, one whom he has now reconciled. Right? So Christians are now reconciled. Paul goes on giving the means, his body, and the purpose to present us holy. We see an image of a holy God. This is what living in the image of God looks like, right? So the calling is the same as the very beginning. But then notice here, notice the stark contrast between the past and the present of these believers. It's like those before and after commercials, but this is actually legit, right? They were enemies, now they're together. They were hostile, now they are holy. They were in sin doing evil deeds, and now they are blameless and above reproach. Truly, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. At the right time. And then verse 23. If you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Christians are continuing and will continue in faith. Paul fully expects that the Colossian believers are going to do this, but, but still feel, like, feel the gravity as he shows that faithfulness is essential. It's not optional, it's essential to the Christian life. Right? When the apostle penned this letter, The gospel had already been spread throughout much of the Greco-Roman world. And and we still know that there is a need, a very real need, to finish the mission. And the scope of this redemptive, kingdom-receiving work is huge. It's massive, right? So the universe is the creation of Christ. It's waiting, Romans says, with pain, till it is completely revamped and made new. Yet brilliantly, the church is the new creation of Christ right now. Okay, so get this. Romans 8, 19 through 21 says, creation itself waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. It's crazy, man. So, friend, you're, you're free to live faithfully. Hear, hear that. that. That Jesus has made final peace for all those who love and know him. So, no, you are welcome here among his people. The church is an expression of Jesus' 
kingship, his sovereignty in the world, right? Jesus is really reigning, and right now, that's felt in his church. It's the preview of the new creation. If we are to continue in faith, we need help, right? So one way God helps his people is through other people. I'm convinced singing is part of that too, right? The call of the word of God is always to work. Yeah, let's, let's have the band come on up here. It's about time, right? And in that vein, I'd like to leave you with this. We know that the result of reconciliation is that Christ is working in believers to present us holy and blameless before God. When the Colossians read this, uh, and again, so that's verse 22. When they read verse 22, they're thinking back to the Old Testament era where, where priests would bring and sacrifice perfect lambs that had no blemish to God. And the beauty is this, that when we present ourselves to the Lord as living sacrifices, in Jesus, our worship is acceptable and we are like him without blemish. The reality is now that the sheep live and are spotless because the shepherd died. It's backwards. The shepherd died. The holiness of God, his supreme, his, his best, his highest purity and glory saw the sheep and killed the son so that all might live. So in Jesus, we have been reconciled with God. Vertical church, remain then in the faith of the gospel. Okay, pray with me.